and welcome or welcome back to Morning Cup of Controversy. I'm Ryan, your host, and today I'm going to talk about LGBTQIA plus stigma. Stigma, again, a topic we're visiting. I also have a guest uh, that will be on later in the episode that's going to come on. We're going to educate a little bit about trans people, trans lives in general, talk about some statistics, a lot of stuff. First, as always, Let's jump into the question of the week. Last week, I was more just curious um, how everybody felt about the Andrea Yates case, and I've had a, I've had conversations with a couple people about it, and most people can't get past the fact that she murdered her kids, which I understand. Like that's hard for me to deal with as well. Um, It's just more like, what could we have done for her as a society and like as her family, what could they have done for her that they didn't? And those are some of those things are some things that we talked about in the mental health episode, which is like, that was the question of the week that week, which was like, what could we do to help somebody exhibiting signs and symptoms? So basically, what could they have done for Andrea? You know, this week. I'm going to ask you guys where you think discrimination and stigma come from based on your personal experience because everybody has gone through so many different things that lead them to believe one way or another and this question of the week isn't about this week's episode necessarily if that's where you want to take it you can it's more just like discrimination and stigma in general like where do you think that feelings like that come from from somebody do you think that you're born into a family that's hateful so you're automatically hateful or do you think it's a learned behavior i'm just really curious what you guys think and i'll share my answer with you next week when we reflect let's go ahead and move on to the topic of the week i'm gonna go ahead and put a disclaimer because we will be talking about some sensitive subjects um in the realm of mental health as in the realm of the LGBT plus community. So if there's anything that you think we'll touch on that might um, affect you, trigger you, then I would click off now. So we all know by now, by listening to my podcast, what stigma is. But if you don't, basically stigma is someone's negative outlook on something that you do or what you look like or basically who you are. Um, And another thing that we'll be addressing in this episode is discrimination which is the unfair treatment of a person caused by that stigma um so as a part of the lgbt community i felt like i i I felt the need to like kind of advocate and this episode isn't like me saying i'm what's the word (laughs) this this episode isn't me saying i'm a genius on this topic whatsoever but I definitely did some you know I have done some research I read a lot of articles that Marty sent me for this episode so and I know that Taylor's got a lot to say later something that I didn't really like get facts on because I just already knew that but anyway it doesn't seem like a lot but that's actually 20 million adults so the community is obviously big that's easy to see I mean I don't know if any of y'all have ever been to Pride, but it's, like, one of the most packed events that I've ever seen in Dallas. Like, I saw more people there than I did at the State Fair, and that's crazy. I'm saying a lot, because the State Fair is huge in Texas. 
So obviously 8% is nothing compared to the rest of the population um, that is unfortunately made up, made up of people who are either uneducated or ignorant. And me and Taylor are going to touch on that a little bit. Um, so I'll save that. And I'll just move on to how stigma affects this community. Um, so I have some jots here. It can impact someone's ability to get and keep a job, which surprisingly is true. And I'll dive into that in just a minute. It also limits someone's access to high quality health care that is responsive to your health issues. Um, it obviously can affect your mental health and, and give you poor coping skills like substance abuse, risky behavior, suicide attempts, you know, if you don't feel like, if you don't feel like you're accepted, all of those things can easily become uh, negative coping skills for anyone, you know. Um, and it also just makes it harder f to open up and just be yourself and be open about your sexual orientation and your gender identity and so that obviously can in increase stress and limit social support and negatively affect your health because when you're stressed, it can affect your physical well-being as well. Um, these were from a study in 2009, which was quite a while ago, but it's still, I felt relevant. People in the LGBT plus community are eight times more likely to have tried to commit suicide six times more likely to have report to report high levels of depression and three times more likely to use illegal drugs studies have shown that reducing the stigma people in the community feel can help with higher self-esteem more positive group identity and more positive mental health overall you, you have to let them know that it's a safe space even if it's something that you for whatever reason don't agree with if you make them feel like they're wrong for it they're going to turn on themselves basically because they're not going to be able to trust themselves anymore there's you know other than that there's not a whole lot that a parent can do the rest of the world doesn't make it easier for you to feel like you can be yourself so if your parents are going to do it it makes it really hard schools on the other hand kids spend so much of their life there like literally years and years and years all the time like eight hours a day another list that I have of things that schools can do. Um, basically, encourage respect for all students and, and not allow bullying, harassment, or violence against any students, which obviously schools say they're doing that, but if we had a show of hands of how many people got bullied or harassed, anything like that in high school, it would be way too many. Schools should identify safe, spaces, safe spaces such as counselors' offices, designated classrooms, or student organizations um, where gay and bisexual youth can get support from administrator, administrator, teacher, or other school staff. I did. I definitely did take this list right from a website because I wanted to just kind of talk about how I felt about the list and like how I think it should be tweaked, but. I was on another podcast and I talked a little bit about how the counselor's office never was a safe space for me because my counselor would just tell my parents everything that I told them and I feel like if you're trying to create a safe space it's somewhere where unless I'm telling you that I'm thinking about harming myself or someone else then there's no reason you should be telling my personal business 
to my parents. So why would a kid feel safe to go come out to their counselor or be who they are at school if the school is just threatening to inform their parents of their behavior? Like, I don't know. I feel like that one just needs to be, like, we need to step back and take a look at that one. Look at it less like these students are, like, people I have to report on and more their lives that matter because like when I looked at my counselors I just was like they're the ones that make my schedule and they're gonna tell my parents if I say I'm depressed like that's basically how I felt about them so I didn't speak to them like I I avoided them at all costs so and I don't even like therapy anymore because of that and it I don't think it's just because of that there's a lot of reasons why I don't like therapy but so there's that one. Um, the next one that it has, let me take a sip of my coffee real quick. The next one here says, encourage student-led and student-organized school clubs that promote safe, welcoming, and accepting school environments, such as gay-straight alliances, which are school clubs to open to youth of all sexual orientation. I think that one could potentially be good I just feel like kids are so malicious now and like the way that our youth is today I don't feel like that would work I feel like it would I mean maybe I don't know I I just I, I think I'm just thinking more about like what would have happened if I was in high school because I just don't remember people like being very open about it in the place that I live and in the school that I went to it was never like it was never something that everybody just knew and if it if somebody thought that somebody was gay it was most likely a rumor or if somebody said that somebody was trans then it was most likely a rumor and you know people would get in trouble for spreading those rumors or you know it was you never really heard about stuff like that in my school it's interesting though because like when i think about what I know Taylor's going to talk about later it's it might work at a school that he went to but not one that I went to because just of the differences in societies in the two different places the next one says make sure that health classes or educational materials include HIV and STD information that is relevant to gay and bisexual youth too making sure that the information uses inclusive words and terms that one's fair. I kind of like that one. That I mean, I don't see why not. I feel like parents probably would like that less than anybody, but... Encourage school districts and school staff to create and publicize trainings on how to create safe and supportive school environments for all students, regardless of sex, sexual orientation or gender identity, and encourage staff to attend these trainings. Obviously, this one would be good because a lot of the teachers are I don't want to say a lot of teachers are old but they're older and they have an older way of thinking about those kind of things and it's very easy for them to discriminate and stigmatize even when they're not trying so that's the thing like stigma doesn't always come from hate a lot of times it just comes from ignorance or like just being generally uneducated so I feel like just educating the teachers to a degree would like make a big difference already. Then we have make it easier for students to have access to community-based providers who have experience providing health services, including HIV and STD testing and counseling and social and psychological 
services to gay and bisexual youth. I feel like gay and bisexual youth have it a lot easier now than they did when I was growing up because it was still kind of tab it like taboo basically and now it's a lot more common to see kids coming out in middle school and people being very accepting of that so I definitely think the times have changed a little bit but there's certain people who are still so uneducated that it's hard for them to not discriminate against people which is not okay so now that we've talked a little bit about those basics and things that maybe could be done differently to help with stigma, I want to talk about um, one professor who is doing all she can to make a difference. Rachel Brenner is an assistant professor of counseling psychology in the College of Natural Sciences. She's developing a new specific method that centers around mindfulness and self-compassion to reduce the barriers to seeking mental health support as well as the discrimination against the community and its impacts. So basically this research focuses on stigma related to seeking a psychiatrist or a therapist. Basically what she's doing is trying to create a new method that therapists and psychiatrists can go about understanding the level of internalized self-stigma and base their work with the client around that. This is a quote from her. Self-stigma is how much an individual has internalized, societally-driven negative perceptions around help-seeking. Individuals with higher self-stigma are less likely to seek help or are at a higher likelihood of dropping out once they've started therapy. Um, It's important as a therapist or psychiatrist to know what level of self-stigma your client has internalized because from there you know where to go and what to work on first most of the time like I did this on my boyfriend and it literally like proved me right but if you ask a straight man about like his sexual preference or if he's like ever been into men most of the time you'll see them get defensive because being a gay or bisexual man is so discriminated against and stigmatized that a lot of men have a built-up self-stigma around the just the idea of it because the way society looks at it so that's really what it is like I said in like the quote said it's an internalized societally societally driven negative perceptions it's been proven that discrimination can lead to worse sleep which can affect your mental health and your physical health Um, so I think the work that she's doing is super important because for someone like me who has a hard time with therapy mainly due to stigma it's it was nice to see that she's that she really understands the fact that it's not always just about the stigma either um it's about like the affordability of care access to care and sometimes just a flat out disconnect between the therapist's idea of what you're trying to say and what you're actually saying i think that what the work that she's doing is important for a lot of reasons because it's going to help with the stigma around getting help in general but also just other stigmas and and teaching therapists and psychiatrists how to base their work around what they're working with with the client's self-perceived stigma because it's such a big thing now like stigma has become become so huge that I feel like everybody has internalized stigma when it comes to something like there can't be There can't be one person that doesn't feel some type of way about themselves because of something.
that society thinks, you know? But we're going to move on to jobs. I mentioned earlier that unfortunately one of the effects um, of stigma can be the that it's hard to hold a job or whatever, get a job. And that's why I wanted to touch on that. Most of these stats are coming from a 2021 study, which is good because that's pretty recent, um, which happens to be one of the first studies that's ever been done on discrimination in the workplace for LGBT plus workers. Let's get right into the facts. One in 10 LGBT plus workers experienced discrimination at work in the last year. And many LGBT plus employees reported engaging engaging in covering certain behaviors to avoid discrimination in the workplace. The Supreme Court's 2021 decision in Bostock v. Clayton County didn't do much to help with this matter. Um, It held that employment discrimination against LGBT people is prohibited by the Title VII, by the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but discrimination is still unfortunately persistent and extremely widespread within jobs. Personally, I don't think I've ever felt discriminated against in the workplace. I definitely have gotten like slurs and, you know, just being called names and stuff, but I guess that is discrimination. So other than that, not a whole lot coming on my end, but over half which is 57% of LGBT employees who experienced discrimination or harassment at work reported that their employer or coworker did or said something that indicated that the unfair treatment they experienced was motivated by religious beliefs. And nearly two-thirds, 63.5% of LGBT employees of color said that religion was a motivating factor in their experience of the of workplace discrimination compared to 49.4% of white LGBT employees. So a lot of people think that religion um religion has something to do with why they're being discriminated against, which religion has a lot to do with why there's stigma around this community in the first place. Um Religion is also something that I don't really want to talk about on my podcast. I just thought that was important to mention because it's just so crazy that people let their religious beliefs get in the way of what somebody else is doing with their lives. (laughs) Like, that's their life, not yours. And if you believe they're going to go to hell, then just, like, move on with your day and believe that. Like, you don't have to spew hate in their face because you think that. 8.9% of all LGBT plus employees said that they were either fired from or not hired from at least one job due to their sexual orientation or their gender identity. And two-thirds, 67.5% of LGBT employees reported that they heard negative comments, slurs, or jokes about LGBTQ people at work. Um, One more statistic that I have for you. One-third, which is 3.5%, or 34.2% of LGBT employees said that they left a job because of how they were treated by their employer based on their sexual orientation or gender identity. So just the fact that people have to worry so hard about what's going to happen when they go to work is so devastating. It breaks my heart that 
this is still happening I don't know I don't know what what as a society we can do other than just educate which is why I do this so <laughs> that you know listening to all of that kind of begs the question is there some truth behind the term gay jobs um where does this kind of occupational segregation come from the question has puzzled social scientists for nearly a century but it's not as simple as an academic problem obviously so it's more of a societal thing that we have to figure out together occupational segregation matters because it can lead to inequality between workers and limit the talent pool for employees trying to fill a position Task independence seems to be a big factor um, because what we just learned, the coworkers and employees are the issue with LGBT plus workers nine times out of 10. Um, hence the reason why gay men and lesbian women find it easier to work in fields like massage therapy, psychiatry, fire safety inspectors, etc. And this article that I used referred to specifically gay men and lesbian women but it's more just the community but they you know they did this based on gay men and lesbian women another thing is that some occupations require a high level of social perceptiveness that is the um, accurate anticipation and reading of others reactions all all people I feel like all people in the LGBT plus community have experience with some level of discrimination, which helps to be better at reading social cues and being more socially aware in general, therefore making jobs like therapy and like social workers and stuff like that easier. There is a list of some jobs that were proven to be more common for gay men and lesbian women. So let me go ahead and read that list for you. Um, we have psychologists, training and development specialists and managers, social and community service managers, technical writers, occupational therapists, massage therapists, urban and regional planners, producers and directors, post-secondary teachers, probation officers and correctional treatment specialists, and morticians, undertakers, and funeral directors. Uh, oh, there's a couple more. Um, physical. <laughs> I just scrolled a little bit. There's like th- there's like three or four more. Physical therapist, exercise psychiatrist. What? Exercise sociologist. Never heard that one before. Computer information system managers, lawyers and judges, magistrates and other judicial workers, and web developers. Other than those few things, there wasn't. A topic I wanted to spend too much time on basically an overview of what we've talked about so far is that LGBT people don't feel safe in the workplace nine times out of ten that's why they tend to lean more towards these fields of work schools need to work on being more open I feel like schools have been better than families have because I feel like a lot of kids probably feel like they can open up more at their school than they do at home so that's probably something we need to work on educating that kind of stuff speaking of educating that is why I wanted to have my guest of the week on um Taylor 
this obviously isn't a topic that I have much personal experience to speak on, so I'm going to go ahead and have my friend come on today and help me talk about it. So today, like I said, I have Taylor coming on to talk with me about transgender lives and everything involving that topic. So hello, Taylor. Yo. Yo. So how about you tell us a little bit about yourself just so the audience can understand who you are and where you come from. All right. Well, I'm a trans guy. I'm bisexual. So I've got two of the different letters in the LGBTQ plus however many acronym. Uh, right. I grew up in California. I spent the first 19 years of my life there and I loved it. And then I did last year in Wyoming. I'm currently living in Dallas, Texas with my girlfriend. And that's been a pretty different experience compared to what I'm, I'm used to. Um, eventually, I want to be a teacher in high school and college. Uh, lately, I've been baking a ridiculous amount of bread. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what free time does to you. It, it does. <laughs> so to backtrack just a little bit, you said it was quite a difference living in Texas compared to where you've lived before. So let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, um, I would say in California, and this is obviously not true of the entire state. Um, I'm, I'm not a representative of my community or the experiences, but um for me personally. Growing up there was, was really supportive. Um, I came out when I was 17 to basically my entire town. It was a pretty small town. And um, like one of the towns where you cannot go to any grocery store without running to like six people that you know. Mm. And even if you would go to the towns outside of the town I grew up in, you would still run into like six people you knew who were also taking a day trip. And everyone was immediately incredibly supportive. Um, a lot of people already kind of knew or assumed or I'd already told them personally that I was trans, like my teachers, my friends. And they were they were immediately so great. I literally received not a singular negative comment from anyone in my community. Both my parents were incredibly supportive. I didn't start physically transitioning until I turned 18 and it did take a second. But this was only because a lot of things uh, in doctor's offices were shut down due to COVID because I turned 18 in 2020. But as soon as I did have an appointment, which only took about a month, I then got my prescription for testosterone same day. I went and I walked down to the pharmacy and and picked it up and started literally that day. Whereas moving to Texas before I even got out here, they don't they don't know that I'm trans, obviously. They did bring up um, the bill happening in Florida currently where um, the don't say gay bill um, mm. certain topics are not allowed to be taught in school and they were fully supportive of it. They outright stated and implied that trans people are inappropriate for children to know about, that it goes against Jesus. And then when I tried to get my healthcare transferred here, I called around to several different clinics, even the ones in the neighborhood that I live in, Oaklawn, which is like the LGBT neighborhood, were booked for months and months that they didn't take anyone without health insurance and I don't currently have health insurance. I ended up having to go through an online registry because there was just nothing out here. Um, and while there are like specifically, you know, supportive laws enacted in California and in like a few blue states ensuring the rights of trans people, here the, the governor tried to classify um, supporting a trans child as child abuse. Um, he wanted teachers to be legally required to inform parents about that, which is incredibly dangerous because trans youth experience homelessness. 
um, specifically due to unsupported families at a much higher rate. Than- and I did touch on that a little bit before you came on um, about what schools can kind of do differently. And um, I thought one of the things that this article, I just kind of put in all the jots that this article did into my script because I wanted to talk about why I agree with parts of it, but disagree with other parts of those things, because it was saying stuff like create a safe space at the school within the counselor's office or blah, blah, blah. When I went to the counselor, every time I told them something, they would call my parents and tell them whether it was depressed or I want to get out of this class or whatever it was, they would call and tell my family. And that was why I stopped going to therapy and the counselors for stuff like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the laws are um, in, in California surrounding that. But I know that when I talked to my counselors, they did not call my parents um, unless I told them something that needed to be mandated reported. Like um, if I was going to harm someone else or myself or someone else was going to harm me. And in general, the whole idea of creating a designated safe space rather than the school itself being safe. Um, like, like really, that's a pretty low reaching goal. It really is. And all the ones that that article kind of talked about, it was just like, well, yeah, schools should already be doing this. Absolutely. Like, <laughs> I, mean, I actually told my English teacher I was trans before I told my parents. Um, and uh, that was that was my freshman year English teacher. And he was a huge help to me in, in feeling comfortable around that. And then my junior year when I came out, um, I came out through a letter um, that like addressed kind of concerns people might have or some misconceptions. Um, because people in blue states still definitely have misconceptions. They just tend to be more open to learning. Um, but my English teacher helped me write that letter. And if I'd not had that support from community members and from different adults that I knew for a fact I could rely on, I definitely would have stayed in the closet for much, much longer. And that's genuinely dangerous if you um, know trans people or even just listen to interviews. They'll say that transitioning for them was not really a choice but something they had to do to continue living I mean one of my favorite musicians Laura Jane Grace she's a trans woman and they ask her in interviews a lot what accomplishment in your life are you the most proud of and she usually says oh just that I'm still alive and that's because 82 percent of trans people like seriously consider suicide 40 percent attempt that's 41 percent among uh, trans men and all of that risk decreases significantly with a supportive social environment is one of the strongest indicators that someone will actually be all right is a strong social environment. Um, And the only thing stronger than that really is the ability to transition. Like all the scholarly research, all of the anecdotal evidence, people's stories, as well as doctors all say that being able to transition, especially being able to transition in a supportive and healthy environment where people respect you and your identity and speak about you respectfully, significantly decreases the risk of being suicidal, of drug addiction, of unsafe behavior, unsafe sex, homelessness, employment discrimination. Um, And trans people face a really high level of employment discrimination and homelessness. And homelessness is significantly riskier for this population too. we're much more likely to struggle with seeking shelter and um, to be assaulted um, specifically because of our identities. And that's much harder in states that don't have specific protections for trans people. Yeah. And to go back just a little bit and touch on the 
you said something about the Florida um, bill that was just recently talked about. I did, yes. Um, I want to talk about Hunter Schaefer for a second. Um, I'm sure a lot of people know who who she is. It's one of the main characters from Euphoria. Um, she's the actor that plays Jules. That's her name. But anyway, um, she said that as a teen, before she really physically transitioned, um, that she felt that people cared more about her appearance than how she openly identified. And that's just how people treated her. They They would misgender her all the time because that's kind of more what she looked like at the time. And even though they knew that she openly identified as a female, they would still misgender her. And so that was something that she had to deal with growing up in a red state. And um, North Carolina, that's where it was, just like Texas, um, she probably dealt with a lot of the struggles that you say, Taylor, that you didn't really, you luckily didn't really have to go through growing yeah. up. But um, so Hunter Schaefer was actually the youngest person to sue North Carolina, and it was because of the bathroom bill that they had, which was forcing people to use restrooms corresponding to their assigned sex and not their gender identity. Um, And a quote from her, she actually said, transphobia resides at the heart of this bathroom bill, which appeals to a public still clinging to the gender binary and fearful depictions of those who reside outside of it. Yeah. her point about fearful depictions is, is really strong. Um, anyone who wants to know more about that should absolutely watch Disclosure. Um, it's on Netflix. It's a documentary specifically about how the um, depiction of trans people in media helps contribute to these larger social inequalities and discrimination. Mm-hmm. Schaefer actually speaks in it um, pretty frequently, um, which is cool. But um, you're right, Ryan, that I did not personally experience a lot of that. I didn't come out until after I'd stopped doing PE, but um, there was a kid I knew who was one of my neighbors and he was a trans guy like me and he did boys PE. He changed in the the men's locker room when I did theater after I came out. I changed in the the boys change room and I didn't get misgendered except by people who didn't know I was trans, which wasn't a lot of people um, because I felt so comfortable sharing that part of myself and it was more comfortable after coming out. yeah, so uh, I was I was very fortunate that I grew up where I did, and specifically in the community that I did, I'll always be really grateful for that, but it's also such a sad thing that I have to be grateful for that, because when you think about it, not a lot of people, specifically white, cisgender, straight people, think about like, oh, I'm glad I was born here, uh, because people don't discriminate against me. Like, I'm glad I was born here, because I'd, I'd have had such a worse life if I was born somewhere else. I, I personally cannot imagine what it would have been like to grow up somewhere where I wasn't supportive because being trans in and of itself is often an incredibly painful experience. Um, You know, with being queer in terms of sexuality, it isn't necessarily when you grow up in a supportive environment and when you're sheltered from that kind of negative social attitude surrounding it. But being trans, even on an island by myself, I would still feel that biological mismatch between my brain and my body that causes gender dysphoria um, mm-hmm. feels really unpleasant um, it's really quite painful and so that just makes the supportive social environment so much more important so that you can cope with the parts of being trans that are kind of already really painful right and then going back to what you just said about the sexual orientation something that we had talked about the other day was the word choice 
and yeah. and how that is a big deal you know moving away from trans for just a second with the whole just being like you said being queer in general like how does that make you feel the word choice um well I would say for me it's not a choice and for most people it's not but that rhetoric I right the way that people use it really unnecessary and a little bit insulting even if um unintentionally to say that it's okay for people to be gay or bisexual um because they didn't choose it because they were born this way and that's the thing that justifies it people really only say it's okay to be a certain way because you didn't choose it Mm -hmm. if you think there's something wrong with it um if you didn't think that it was inferior somehow to be queer we wouldn't say that it's only okay if it's not a choice it would be it's okay if that is a choice like hypothetically if someone were genuinely happier being bisexual or being homosexual it would not be bad for them to choose it were that possible um not that it necessarily is but i just find it so frustrating that that's been historically the number one uh, talking point pushed to further queer acceptance is that, well, it's not a choice. It's not a choice. Even if it was a choice, it should be okay. Right. Exactly. And that's really why I wanted to talk about that even just for a second, because it's very, it is very frustrating, especially for, I can, I can imagine, especially for trans people who, like you said, it's already a, a difficult thing to deal with in general regarding or disregarding the fact that people have an an opinion about it you know yeah let's just let's just move towards the end of this and um I did have two little questions for you first what would you say to anybody who's having a hard time feeling like finding their place in the community or if they if they are having a hard time coming out or anything like that uh that it's really worth it that it does make quality of life so much better, but to not do it if they're in an environment that will, when that decision will bring them legitimate harm. Um, If they're going to face, you know, physical harm, emotional abuse, homelessness, it is better to wait until you're in a safe environment. But if you know you're in a safe environment, do it. It improved my life so much, I was really probably going to die within months had I not come out and it had helped everything and I remember how it felt waiting because I knew I was trans and I came out to friends when I was 13 in the seventh grade I I knew it was going to be worth it to wait to transition not that people should have to wait really but I was going to have to it felt like a really long time experiencing it and it was really painful to have to wait for something that would make me feel comfortable in my body comfortable seeing myself in the mirror hearing myself speak um but once I actually got there it didn't feel like it had actually been that long um and it is never too late there are people who come out and transition in their 50s and their 60s that are still happier for it I know a woman who's friends with my mother whose husband just came out as a trans man and transitioned and he's in his mid to late 60s and it's helped his life so mostly that it's worth it Um, And that there are people who are supportive. There are people who will celebrate you for who you are. I'm blessed to have a family that not just accepts who I am as trans, but actively celebrates it, is glad for it, sees it as a good thing um, and a gift. Um, And and there are people who will be that way. It just takes time. I love that. Do you have, do you have like off the top of your head, do you know of any resources or anything for people who are struggling or 
I do. Yeah. There's the trans lifeline specifically, which is a hotline, a crisis hotline um, that is run and staffed entirely by and for trans people. And that is 877-565-8860. And then for anyone really struggling with getting gender affirming health care, um, like I was, it is more expensive, but folkshealth.com and that's F-O-L-X um, health.com uh, got me my prescription pretty quickly. Um, and that was very helpful because I had been waiting for months um, to transfer my prescription over. And that solved the problem pretty quickly. It, it just costs a, a little bit more. Well, thank you so much. I'm definitely going to list both of those as well as the Trevor Project in my resources Google Doc that was that is always in my description of my episode. And uh, if you want, um, there are some people I know that do this sort of research and what they do is they uh, keep their sources um, and their quotes in a Google document that people can view so that if people are more interested in looking more into a topic um, or seeing points that they might not have been able to touch on um, more closely, um, I can send you over, if you're willing, a, a link to the Google document that has um, all the research that my wonderful girlfriend, Brittany, helped me compile um, just for anyone who's interested. Of course, yeah, I will list that down in the description of this episode as well. So you guys heard that. It will be there. So if y'all want to do any more digging on anything that we just talked about or find a couple different topics that we didn't get a chance to talk about, then go ahead and find that in in the description as well. And Taylor, is there anywhere that people can find you outside of the podcast or anything that you want to share other than what we already did? Um, I suppose I have an Instagram, although I I very, very rarely post on it. Um, You're welcome to pop over and ask me any questions. I know not a lot of trans people like to educate other people on what it's like to be trans um, and it's it's not really fun for any minority to have to debate or explain um, their existence or their rights I also understand that it's pretty necessary uh, and this is one thing I really did want to touch on briefly is that um, there is this push from the left of it's not my responsibility to educate you that's emotional labor that's very taxing for me and the truth is it is um, and it should not be Um, our responsibility it should especially not be the responsibility of oppressed minorities um, who are already facing a lot of difficulty Um, but for those of us who are privileged enough to to be comfortable doing that to be capable of doing that to to have the time the energy we should um, mostly because you don't hear this from the right wing you don't hear this from conservatives this we won't educate you we won't tell you we won't give you resources we're not going to hold your hand they will and they will give people the wrong ideas they will as we've been seeing in our country really help people descend into fascism and into bigotry. Um, And so um, I am always willing to have those conversations, um, even if they are difficult, even if they are unpleasant. Um, And so my Instagram is Taylor J. Bowser. It's T-A-Y-L-O-R-J-B-O-W-S-E-R. It's just my full name. Okay, awesome. I'll put that in the description too, just in case. So anybody can go check that out. And thank you so much for coming on and talking to me again. And Yeah, you have a great rest of your day, Taylor. You too, Ryan. Thank you so much. All right. A general overview. After I looked at all the research and we learned everything we did in this episode, I've learned a lot and I hope y'all have learned a lot, but there's still so much more to talk about when it comes to the LGBTQIA plus community. You know, there's so many different parts of the community and I could sit down and talk to somebody representing each individual community and see their struggles and if that's something that y'all are interested in then just let me know 
let's go ahead and move on to the quote of the week. This week, I asked Taylor for his favorite quote to use, so this is the one that he has donated for us this week. It says, Law never made man a whit more just, and, by means of their respect for it, even the well-disposed are daily made the agents of injustice. By Henry David Thoreau. That is all I have for y'all today. Um, Thank you so much for the endless support. I actually this week hit 300 total listens on my podcast. Don't forget to find me outside of your favorite audio platform with the link in the description. Also, don't forget to check out the other link in the description that's for resources that I keep updated. And like I said earlier, at the end of the interview, I'll be adding a couple more things on it this week. Thanks again so much, and I will talk to you all next week. Bye! Hello, and welcome or welcome back to Morning Cup of Controversy. My name is Ryan. I'm your host. Um, I, I did not plan to take a leave of absence as long as I did. Um, I appreciate you for hanging around. I did have a couple people send me a message and say, Hey, when's the new episode coming out? And that's the thing. I've been planning the new episode, which was supposed to be episode 13. I've been planning it for the last couple weeks while I've been out of the office. (laughs) And it's been very interesting, to say the least. Um, It's quite the topic, and I don't want to miss a whole lot. I want to make sure that I get everything I need to get. I feel like it'll be better for that topic to be more of a conversation and rather than me just telling you facts, which I could do, I've done for pretty much every episode so far. It's just this one seems a little bit more deep, and y'all will see when I get there. But I'm going to have a fellow podcasting friend have a conversation with me about that one. That way it seems a little bit less like I'm reading a script and more like we're having a conversation about something serious, because it is something serious. So that one will be coming next week, fingers crossed. Um, working out our schedules and trying to get together and do that but hopefully it's coming next week so this week I want to um, change things up a little bit I don't want to do a very scripted episode this week I'm actually literally working with no scripts I'm strictly using reddit for today's episode Um, so shout out to reddit because it's giving me everything I need today honestly so still gonna do question of the week still gonna do quote of the week at the end we're gonna use reddit and look at the unpopular opinion community and kind of just talk about what these people have to say um talk about my opinion based off of their opinion and things along those lines so you know i figured that would kind of fit into the lines of an opinionated podcast might as well talk about some unpopular opinions and talk about how i feel about them so first Let's do the question of the week, like always. Um, This week, I pulled up a question I found. What is the general theme of your life? And this one's actually a poll on Reddit. So I'm going to go ahead and answer this poll while I'm talking to you guys. But I got to kind of deduct down to my answer, I guess, because there's quite a few. So it says, action, drama, comedy, romance, thriller, or tragedy. And I could consider my life to fall under a couple of these categories I would say I action probably not so much I'm probably one of the laziest people you will ever meet so I wouldn't say the general theme of my life is action um drama 
I can see that one fitting. I'm a very, very sensitive, dramatic, like, I don't know. I don't want to say it's because I'm a cancer, because I don't want to be one of those girls, but it's probably just because I'm a cancer. <laughs> I cry a lot, so drama definitely fits. Um, comedy? I guess it could fit into comedy because, you know, my life is kind of spiraling out of control nine times out of ten, so that might be funny to some people. I don't know. Maybe it's comedy. Romance? Definitely not. Definitely not. I'm just gonna... I mean, I don't know. I've been in a relationship for a while, so... I wouldn't say it's the least... My life is the least romantic, but I'm definitely not, like, a lovey-dovey, I-want-to-hold-your-hand-and-like-cuddle-with-you-in-public type of person anyway, so I wouldn't want romance to be the general theme of my life. Um, <laughs> moving forward, thriller. I don't necessarily think I would categorize it as a thriller either, because maybe later in my life, maybe we're building up to the action or something, because my life has been kind of, I wouldn't say boring, it's definitely not a boring life, so I don't know, and I wouldn't put it under tragedy either, because I mean, I probably personally would put it under tragedy, but I don't know that people outside looking in would put it under tragedy. I think I'm just gonna stick with comedy, because I try to make the best out of everything, <laughs> I try to make the best out of everything. So, wow, 1.7% of people said their lives are... 1.7% of people? 1.7 thousand people said that their lives' general theme is comedy. So, that's pretty funny. Most people said either comedy, tragedy, or drama. Pretty interesting to see what other people think about that as well, though. But yeah, I'd definitely go ahead and give mine comedy after looking at all those options. <clears throat> so, now that we've done the question of the week, um, go ahead and leave in the description or in the Q&A box if you're on Spotify what you think the general theme of your life would be if you were answering that poll. Um, very curious to know, especially with some of my friends who listen to this podcast. I want to know what you guys would say. Um... Moving forward, let's go ahead and get into the topic of the week, which, like I said this week, just going to be talking about some unpopular opinions. Um, I'm just going to read a couple things that people have posted in this subreddit, and yeah. This first one that I thought was interesting says, I don't think living together before marriage is necessary. I'm tired of people of insisting that you need to live together before you get married to, quote, truly know the person that you're considering marrying. I don't think it's necessary. I can get to know my partner just fine while living in separate households. We spend ample amounts of time together and he has already shown me he doesn't have any red flags. He has some mildly annoying habits, but it's nothing alarming and certainly nothing I can't get used to. That's really all I need to know. While I get that people want to make absolutely sure that this is the person that, oh, that the person they're with is the right one, I think you can still accomplish that while living, without living together before you're married. As long as you function well together in most situations, you agree on most things, and you aren't constantly arguing, then you will probably be fine. I feel absolutely no need to live with my partner before we get married because I am confident that we will be just fine. So that's what this person had to say, and in response, personally, before I read any of the comments, 
Um, I also somewhat agree. I don't think it's, like, 100% necessary. I think it's really, like, based on you as a person. Because I know a lot of people, I feel like mostly kids who grow up, like, a only child, they're used to things being this way and being that way and there's nobody like going behind them and changing it and like nobody is going behind them in the bathroom and moving things around and like just little stuff like that so I feel like for this person probably was like an only child or wasn't raised in like a big family or anything like that because personally I grew up having three little sisters both my parents in the house we had four dogs most of the time so it was quite a packed living situation and I wouldn't say that that has, like, made me the way I am now because most relationships that I've been in, the person either ended up moving in with me or we just spent a lot of time together. And that's, I like I said, I think it's all just, like, based off personal things because I don't live with my partner because I want to know that for sure I want to get married to them. I feel like I live with my partner because they're my partner and I just chose to live with them. You know, like, it's not, it's not like, it's not like you move in with the person because you think you want to get married and you know that, like, this is the final decision. Like, if this works, then we're going to get married. If it doesn't work, then we're not going to get married. Um, I would say nine times out of ten relationships are really just about work and the amount of effort that you're putting in. If you move in with somebody and then all of a sudden think, oh, no, this isn't the person I want to be with. I'm sure there's reasons why, like, that would be a good, like, deductive reasoning from that. But in most cases, it's kind of like, okay, so they do this one little thing and now all of a sudden you don't want to, like, marry them anymore. Maybe you didn't actually love them in the first place or maybe it was like, I don't know. For me personally, it's like if you want the relationship to work you're gonna do whatever you can to make sure that that person stays and I don't know I don't know I I can't say it's not real love if you like get upset about something that they do like in a living situation but to me personally I guess that's just how I feel like this is all opinion based so it's not like I'm offending anybody by saying this and if I am I'm not really that sorry not really that sorry I um (laughs) I'm talking about opinions so if this isn't your opinion then you can tell me in the comments like you just this this is a that's what this podcast is about y'all um so let's read a little bit of the comments and see what they have to say oh all I have to do is scroll I'm like sitting here clicking on the word um this guy in the comments says I knew a couple that met, got engaged in two weeks, got married two months later, still together 50 years later. I also have some acquaintances who knew each other for years, got married, super messy divorce, not even six months later. Anything is possible. However, the more you know each other, the better, and not living together can leave a lot of unknowns. I agree with that as well, because in that situation, like this person who wrote the, who wrote the post, Basically, they're saying, like, I know enough about my partner. I don't need to live with them. Like, I know they have no red flags, blah, 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 blah. But you really don't know that. You don't know if, you know, when you guys move in together after you get married and you you sleep in the bed together for, like, one of the first times ever and they take up half the bed and that pisses you off. Like, Like I said earlier, that shouldn't be a reason 
to not want to be married to that person anymore. But it's definitely nice to know before you commit yourself to somebody forever and you don't even have the chance to say, like, hey, this bothers me. Hey, that bothers me. I don't know. I feel like it, after you're married is a little bit too late to say that. But um, somebody else commented and said, so data kind of... So data kind of matches your observation. Couples that don't cohabitate couples that don't cohabitate are more likely to get divorced in the first 6 months and couples who do cohabitate are more likely to get divorced in the first 6 year or in the first year. <clears throat> um Let me comprehend that for a second. <laughs> Basically, I don't know. It doesn't really, like, seem too different to me. It seems like this comment is saying, like, most couples are going to get divorced anyways. So, like, I don't know. It's just kind of a weird one. It's a weird comment. Um, let's move on to a different one. Somebody underneath that said, we studied this study in... In my social psychology class in college, this only shows half of the story. The study refers to couples that slide into living situations together, meaning they're already spending too, so much time together that they think they might as well just move in together. If there isn't a distant decision, a distinct decision to move in together, this is what causes problems for couples that cohabitate before marriage. On the other hand, couples who make a cons conscious decision to sit together and make decisions regarding the move, etc., are actually better equipped and that risk factor much less applies to them because it's not for convenience or just cause. That clarifies a little bit. <laughs> I liked, I, I needed that. I needed that to kind of understand a little bit more. So I think that's enough of this topic. Let me know what you I think that's enough of this topic. Let me know what you guys think. Let's go ahead and move on to a different unpopular opinion.